G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Murch and today, the extended chat with our feature guest. Kelly Lang has a story to tell of their life that they've just released as an audiobook called I'm Not Going Anywhere, which is also available in hard copy. The title originally was a song Kelly wrote and sung many years ago, which was given a new life when the tune ran as part of a commercial for Ascension Hospitals in recent years, including during the Super Bowl telecast. Of note, Olivia Newton-John's latest double album, Just the Two of Us, has a duet with Kelly of How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, a tune which can also be found on her 2016 album, Throwback. The newly released collection also features duets with Delta Goodrum, Tina Arena, John Travolta and Dolly Parton doing a new version of Jolene. From their home in America, our feature guest today is Kelly Lang. Welcome to Radio Notes. Oh, thank you so much, John. What a great introduction. I listened to the audiobook, which was a strange experience because normally with a book, I'm taking the highlighter and taking the notes and the little post-it notes and all that kind of stuff. But obviously with an audiobook, I had to type things out and I'd be walking and I'd stop and I'd write. It is so informative and we will get to the importance of the book. But if I may first, if you don't mind sharing, Olivia Newton-John was an Australian and a world icon, but she also was a dear friend of yours who took you through some of the journey that you had with breast cancer. Yes, indeed. She was a dear friend and I, I miss her every day. I hear her voice in my head every day. And she was a very wise, witty person. I'm sure, you know, in Australia, you know that already. But to be her girlfriend was, I I always knew I was in the presence of greatness when I was in her presence. She would call me and you know what? We were friends for years, 10, 15 years. And I never got over it. I never got over how cool it was that her name would pop up on my caller ID and she would say, I'm thinking about you. I'm driving to the grocery store and I'm going to make blah, blah, blah. I'm making during the COVID, she was making yeast bread and sourdough bread. And so she was telling me her recipes for that. And um, we never really talked music that much other than the fact that she really liked my style of singing. I sing very low for a female and she always sang high. So she kind of wished that she could sing low and vice versa. So um, anytime I would do an album, like say with cover tunes, I would send it to her as, you know, just a gift. And she would always call me with her critiques of every, every one of the songs. And she gave me the gift of knowing that she plays all of my albums for her dinner guest when she had, had people over for dinner, which was quite a compliment from somebody like herself. And so when I saw her sing with Barry Gibb there in, in uh, Melbourne for her, gala for her hospital, they sang, how can you mend a broken heart? So when she called me and asked me if I was reporting any new albums coming up, I said, yeah, you want to join me? I really didn't think she would (laughs) because I was just thought that was a funny thing to say. And she goes, yeah, what are we going to sing? And I thought the, the first thing I could think of was how can you mend a broken heart? Because Barry is the one who introduced us. And uh, it would just be a nice full circle moment. And uh, yes, it ended up on an album that I had out called Throwback. But we really never promoted it as a single or anything. And um, so what a thrill it is to be coming out on this duet album. And that's the beauty of it as well, is that it is just like having a friend on your album, as you said, wasn't promoted big. It was just released, as you do. Barry Gibb, we'll get back to later in the conversation, but I should mention a duet, different song, 
as a duet on this album with Barry is there as well. Women's World. I've got a beautiful video, uh, some behind the scenes. I've never before seen footage of Livia and I in the studio recording How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? And it's going to be debuted on womensworld.com on May 5th. And I'm super excited. They never do that. And it's a very big publication here in the United States. So the link will be worldwide. So I'm very happy to share that. That is part of the double album, Just the Two of Us, duets featuring John Travolta, Barry Gibb, Delta Goodrum, of course, who did biopic of Olivia's life, Dolly Parton doing Jolene, and so much more. You met later in life, as you say, through Mr. Gibb, but... What was your first memory of, um, what was going to say? Sorry, I got a thumb pop up for some reason. Yeah, I see that. Okay, someone's popped into the room. Okay, I'll just take that as being Olivia saying hello. <laughs> She's known to do that. that. I have lights that come on in my house when I talk about her, so I may be her. I don't know. For our listener, we're on a Zoom chat and the little thumbs up came up. And it's us only, I believe, only us two on the call. And I'm going to get back to my question. What was your first introduction to Olivia Newton-John? When I was six years old, my dad was Conway Twitty's road manager for 25 years. And Conway Twitty's a huge entertainer. I'm sure y'all have heard of him there. So I was able to go see her in concert because of Conway when I was six. And I was able to meet her. I have a darling picture of me looking up at her. You know, just I just adored her. Of course, she wouldn't remember that. So many years later, I became friends with Barry Gibb and his family, Sir Barry Gibb, I should say, was that a benefit that he was performing at. And he just did not tell me, didn't think to tell me that Olivia was going to join him on that show. It's just, you know, like drinking water to him, I guess. So I'm sitting at their table. He was backstage. I'm talking to his wife, Linda, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, hello, love, may I sit next to you? And I go, my gosh, you know. It was her and it was such a shock. And she sat down and we instantly bonded. We had so much in common. We had obviously the Gibb family, music, songwriting, same friends groups, but we just never crossed paths. Mothers and ultimately breast cancer thrivers, as she would like to call us. I had gone through breast cancer about eight, nine years before that. But, you know, you still feel freshly going through that situation, even in the eight years, but she had gone through it way before me. So when we bonded over that, we were able to talk, Hey, did you do this? Did you do that? She said, this, this is how witty she was. She said, did you go through chemo? And I said, yeah, but I quit early, you know, dropped out. And she goes, chemo drop out you know, <laughs> from the movie Grease. So she had a very quick sense of humor and um, she would give me her pearls of wisdom uh, as to what she would learn in different cancer clinics and all, she would always make sure and call me or meet me somewhere and walk hand in hand with me and say, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't be eating. You know, I learned how to live life boldly and thoroughly and appreciatively gratitude filled because of her. And she wrote the forward to my book that's chalk filled with little things that I've grown and learned to do. But a lot of her wisdom is throughout the book too. And I, I dedicated a chapter to her and how much she meant to me. And uh, I, I just am thrilled that she had a, a part to do with my book. In her final days, or at least in the final year or two, she was a big advocate of medical cannabis. 
And I'm just wondering yeah. whether or not you have a view on it and you may not, that's fine. Or at least share some of that passion that she had for alternative medicine. So that's a broader topic for such, yeah. for um, such treatments. Well, you know, when you are freshly diagnosed with something that serious, you naturally, you, you don't know what to do. You just take the doctor's advice and you just, you know, you feel like that's all that you can do mm. is just go down that path. Um, what I love about her is her bravery to use. Basically, she used herself as a self example of trial and error and the possibility that that may work, may not work. But it's, it's almost like how brave of her to to say no to certain things that were typical treatments and embracing things that could possibly help the next person. And, and she took a big chance on herself. However, I ultimately think it was the right choice. I, I believe in her passion towards that. My favorite thing that she offers there at, at the hospital that she put her name so boldly on was that we're all mind, body, spirit. We don't necessarily just need, you know, Western medicine pumped into our veins to be able to heal, but it's about peace and upward thinking and treating the, the spirit of the self. And so she's incorporated places to paint, places to listen to music and relax and get massages and meditation within the hospital. So it's a wellness center that she was so passionate about. And I totally am on the same same mindset with her. And and she's given me the courage, if God forbid I ever get re, you know, diagnosed with this terrible disease, I would go down her same path. I would do exactly what she did. And she single-handedly gave me that courage to do that because I, I believe that it was the right path. Even though she's no longer here with us, I still trust that she did right. And as we'd suggest, obviously, medical advice should not be ignored in these scenarios, but that holistic approach of... Yeah, I think you can do both. I, and she ended up doing both. She did, you know, she did use the more, I guess, I don't know what the word would be, less barbaric approach, I should say, but she had to, she had to deal with some Eastern and Western mindsets, I'm sure, but uh, she fought a great fight. I also note in the book that you did use good old Dr. Google to decide that uh, chemo wasn't for you anymore. <laughs> I would not suggest that, but obviously that was your, your choice to use Dr. Google. Well, Dr. Google probably could get me in a lot of trouble too, but you know, I had, everybody's got their own path. The one thing I did uh, really want to to get across in my book, whether it's right or not right, I don't know, but we all are given the gift of intuition. We know our own bodies more than a doctor would. They just meet us sometimes, you know, nice to meet you. You have cancer, you know, they, they don't know what we really feel. And for instance, my cancer that I was diagnosed with was not, it didn't show up in a mammogram or even an ultrasound. But I just knew something wasn't right. You know, I just I just knew I felt something there that the ultrasound wand did not detect. So I had a little bit of um, I guess I was abrupt to her. But I said, may I use your wand and, and push it a little deeper to show you what I'm feeling? Mm. And if I hadn't been a proactive about my own health, I wouldn't be here because mm. it had already spread. It had already spread to my lymph nodes and uh, needed much you know, stronger treatments at that point. My, my point is, is we have the gift, all of us. Women, I think sometimes have a bit more of it because, you know, maybe we need a bit more protection or something. I don't know, but I try to teach people 
to really listen and, and hone in on that instinct that we have because it's there to, to protect us and save our lives sometimes. Talk to me about Get Better, Not Bitter. This is a book you read from a newscaster. Well, that was just one sample of a book that I, I had started doing a lot of. Uh, I, I The thing is, I didn't have anybody to talk to. I, I didn't have anybody. I was only 36 years old. Um, I didn't have anybody that I could just call and go, what does this feel like? How, how do you navigate with two little kids? My children were five and nine, you know, or no, they were, they were like nine and 13 at the time. Mm. It was, oh my goodness. I, I just felt very fearful, but yet also angry. And I, I wanted to do something to get out of this darkness. So I could move into the light as quickly as I could. And that particular book just gave you inspiration and courage to, you know, not get so bitter because it's easy to get down. It's a choice that we make to stay positive. It some days, clearly, I do not feel like smiling. But if you smile anyway, it's infectious and it might brighten somebody else's day up. Sometimes it's not all about us having a good day. Sometimes it's just about basically getting through and 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 seeing the light in things. For instance, I'm sitting here at my computer. I have eyes to see you. I I started breaking it down into little bits like. Thank you, God, for my eyes. Thank you that I hear birds outside. Thank you, my dog's barking. You know, just I would find little things to just dwell upon. And I and I would watch comedies on purpose. Mm. I didn't like watching comedies some days. You know, but, and then once I was around Olivia, I realized that's how she lives her whole life. By the time we get to the Olivia chapter, you've got someone introduced in your life that you can have those eyes, as you're saying, to look back on what had been happening and what choices you'd made. At this point, I should also mention that you were born legally blind. And so at 18, you signed up for some eye surgery. Eyesight is something I guess you're very thankful for as well. I had 20-20 vision up to about 43, I guess, and then it started going back downhill again. So to find a doctor now that can fit me in unusual contacts. Since my surgery, you know, my eye has got scars on it now from the cuts that they made. So it's really difficult to fit me in contacts, but I am blessed to have those. So I'm, I'm really grateful. I hang on to it. Talking about family, because there was some family that was also threaded throughout this book and that of your two daughters, but also quickly back to chapter nine, a character who's introduced there is your brother, Scott, and obviously a very sensitive soul deep down inside that has some very loving feelings for the health of his sister. My brother Scott was born with brain cancer. So the fact that he is in his 60s now is a tremendous miracle. They did not give him but one year to live. And now he's got five kids of his own, several grandchildren, and uh, he's a walking miracle, truthfully. He's one of these brothers, though, that never he's not a lovey, touchy, feely guy. So he's not like one of these, oh, I love you so much, you know, I'm proud of you or anything. It's never been that. So this really shocked me. It, it took him to the core. I think it brought him back to perhaps his situation as well and how it touches every family, unfortunately. Um, but he lovingly shaved my head when my hair started falling out in clumps and he was making light of it. He called me G.I. Jane. <laughs> So I had really long hair before. And then, of course, I was bald. So I didn't know that affected him so greatly um, until I called his wife later for something. And she said, Scott's in the bedroom crying. He has not been able to stop crying. He could not believe he had to do that. But he was grateful that you 
trusted him to do that. And um, since then, every once in a while, I'll get a pink ribbon in my mailbox or, a you know, a pink T-shirt or something just throughout the years. He's he's not a real uh, talkative, warm, fuzzy kind of guy, but I know he loves me. I know he he worries about me and, and uh, I know he's proud of me. My other brother, Mike, he was more quiet. He won't talk about it. I think it bothered him more than he would like for you to know, but he's a real practical guy. He's one of the guys that go, well, you know, circle of life kind of guy. <laughs> so I think it would devastate him if something were to have happened to me. Now, my sister and I, she took it very seriously. She's um, she's in the medical field too. So she was very concerned about me and nurturing and sending me, you know, things in the mail all the time. So when I would go through treatments, I would go stay at my mom's house and it was a family thing. You know, they they all took care of me in some way or form. Huckabee was good enough to wear a pink shirt, but you also made note over the time that that itself, just the, the use of this pink iconography can sometimes be a little off-putting, particularly with groups like uh, Code Pink, where it's a very full-on environment of personal stories that that's attached to. How are you feeling now about that representation of pink and the communication that that represents? I love your questions, John. Digging into things that I haven't really talked about really much before. Um, to me, I really believe in the law of attraction and the fact that whatever you focus on greatly will come back to you. So I really use that in my life a lot. And at the time, I clearly wanted cancer to be behind me. I wanted nothing to do with it. I wasn't wanting to focus on it. Anytime somebody would bring me something pink, it was just a constant reminder of, I look, I liken it to a, a race car driver. If they're going to go around a wall, they're going to focus on one spot in the wall. They're going to hit the wall. Hmm. And out of fear, out of not wanting to bring this in my life at all, I chose not to talk about it. I clearly went the opposite way. I wanted nothing to do with, although I appreciated the, uh, the, the corporations that, bring awareness to it. I kind of kept it at a distance, not an offense to them. It was a personal thing, but now I'm 18 years out. I'm not living in fear anymore. I just thank people when they offer that for me. I just think that's very sweet. That's their way of loving on you. And I'm good with that. I don't have an aversion to it anymore, but I just choose not to embrace it like some other people would. That's a me thing, you know, the running away then you write a song called I Ain't Going Anywhere. So are you running away, well, Kelly Lang, or are you not going anywhere? Let's talk about the song. Let's do. Okay, so the songs I'm Not Going Anywhere, and I wrote it before I was diagnosed. I wrote it about a person that was watching her husband going through a turmoil with hospice being at the house. He was terminal. And the only time he would feel comforted was when his wife, although he had a lot of help, his wife would say, honey, I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. And then he would be real peaceful. And I thought, wow, if you could bottle that, you know, that would be such a gift for people to feel that comfort and warmth. So I wrote this song. And then several months later, I was diagnosed. And my boyfriend at the time, I said, you know what? I may not survive this. It's time for you to go on. We're not committed, you know. And he says, I'm not going anywhere. And I thought, oh. Wow. I needed to hear that so badly. And he didn't leave. And we're married 23 years together now. So running away from it was a natural instinct as human to go want nothing to do with this. But in learning from Olivia, 
and I blame this wholeheartedly on Olivia, in seeing how many people she helped just by being open and vulnerable and sharing her story, I would be selfish to keep all of that to myself. I didn't want to be a light. I didn't want to be any type of somebody to focus on about this until her encouragement, because I see the many people that she helped heal, not physically, maybe, but emotionally. Her music was healing. She was, in essence, a healer, 100%. And I took a card from her playbook because a page from her playbook because I felt that she was not an accident in my life. She was not put in my life to just, you know, not learn anything from. That would be silly, you know, to not learn from her and embrace what she taught me and and help others with it and her legacy to be able to pass on. I will say I had no intention of writing a book. I had written notes down because the doctor said, your daughters may want to have a video for you in case you don't survive. And I'm like, that's very morbid, you know. But I took her seriously. I wrote a bunch of notes down and I thought maybe one day I'll write a book, but I honestly forgot about them. So during uh, the pandemic, I was cleaning out my garage because I had a lot of time on my hands, as we all did. And I came across those notes. And a friend of mine, she called me that night and she said, I had a dream that you wrote a book and it helped a lot of people. It just struck with me. I'm like, does this have to do with the notes that I found? She goes, as a matter of fact, it does. So that's all I needed. I I needed to know that if I did go down this path, that it was of help to people. I could care less about fame or having a name for myself. The thing that keeps me going and and helps me get up in the morning is knowing that this was not in vain. This experience was something that could be of help to others. And and, uh, it's, it's important for me to spread that message now that I feel safer and more confident in my survival. Can you please talk to me about Kim Fannin? So, you know, we're talking about our gut instinct earlier. I was at a party. It was a, it was a benefit party, but I didn't know who the benefit was for. I didn't know anything about it. I was there not really wanting to be there. I'd really rather be home, you know, it's just kind of, but and as the party was ending and the show was over, I found myself thinking about this person that I saw across the room whom I recognized the signs thinning hair, kind of a green tint to her face, very sad and tired looking. And I thought, I don't know what she's going through and I don't want to come up and talk to her, but I felt this nudge, almost like a, you know, go encourage her. So I listened and I reluctantly went over there and I said, excuse me, I don't know who you are, but I, uh, I can recognize myself in you. I am at that point, I think I was like, 12 years out of going through breast cancer. And I'm here. I'm a lightweight. If I can make it through anything dark like that, anybody can. So I just wanted to be some kind of encouragement to you. Fast forward, I find out that she's friends with several people that I know. So we became friendly. She came to some of my concerts. We became really good friends and started traveling with our families and stuff together. And she confided in me, and this is from her. She gave me permission to share this story in my book as well. She had gone through breast cancer. She had two very unhealthy children, and her dad just died, and her mom was just diagnosed with dementia. She was severely depressed, so much so that she was considering taking her life the next day. And if I had not said something to her, not not complimenting myself, but I encourage people to adhere to whatever nudging that they have. She would not be here today. 
and the book wouldn't have been written and lots of beautiful things have happened in both of our lives because of that nudging. So I encourage people, if you feel the need to encourage others or give people a kind word or give your smile away, it's free, you know, so that that's a very important thing that I learned from that. Those that do need to talk to someone, there's Lifeline on 13 11 14. That number's 13 11 14. Resources at beyondblue.org.au. International listeners, that's beyondblue.org.au. You can access those resources anywhere in the world. Radio Notes, released first as podcast, can also be heard on radio worldwide. Joining us today is Kelly Lang. Her audio book is called I Ain't Going Anywhere. And if you're one of those people that wants to stay home and not go anywhere, you're missing out on Country for a Cause on June the 7th. Our guest today will be headlining that very show with a plethora of amazing artists. What's it all about? Country for a Cause is uh, created by a friend of ours and, and my publicist, Scott Sexton. He has a very compassionate heart and wanting to give back to Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt in Nashville. Every year we get together, my husband and I, T.G. Shepard, and I host this show and we bring in friends in the music business that have the same hearts and everybody donates their time. Everybody dedicates their music. We all get together and it's like a big family. We have a big party. We auction off musical instruments, gifts and stuff and, and trips. And it's just a fun night, a great way to celebrate music and also be able to help the kids. What was the song you wrote for Conway? Because it was somewhat of one of your first ever songs. Yes. As a matter of fact, um, I was dating T.G. Shepard at the time, and he used to open for Conway's concerts a lot. And being that I grew up in the Conway family and, and era, so we were having dinner one night talking about our mutual friendship with Conway and what he meant to him, what he meant to me and, you know, how much we missed him. He'd been gone for several years at that point. And um, as I, I parted ways with him, a song started coming to me and I'm like, oh boy. I, and we, we were, we met in the middle, like he lived three hours from me. And so we met like an hour and a half in. And so on the way back, this song started coming. So I was looking for a pen and a piece of paper and I didn't have either. So I found a napkin and a lip liner and I wrote this song called Goodbye, Darling. And it's uh, in reference to his huge hit called Hello, Darling. And it was all about regret and not being able to see him and not being able to tell him how I feel about him, how important he was to me and how loved he was and, and how he didn't know how much he meant to so many people. He was a very shy man, very quiet and uh, introverted, I should say. But um, this song is just really in honor of how much I loved him and and the regrets that I have not been able to, to tell all of that to him. He saw me from the time I was one up until I was 25. And although I was seeing and I was opening act for a lot of people, I hadn't really evolved as a an artist per se, or a writer at his passing. He knew I was beginning to sing and knew I was beginning to do things, but I'd give anything to be able to ask his advice and grow as an artist with him uh, side by side, but it, that didn't happen. So, You've written for a, a number of people over the years, but what is it about songwriting for you, Kelly, that keeps you interested? There's your thumbs up again. <laughs> I can't help but songwrite. Uh, we'll just it's, check it's with a... Olivia. Olivia, what do you think of Kelly's songwriting? <laughs> oh, 
Well, I'll tell you what she thought of it. She, um, when she would hear songs that would affect her that I've written, she called me. She goes, Kelly, did you cry when you wrote I'll Just Hold My Breath, which is on an album called Obsession? And I said, yes. Well, how do you know that? And she goes, because I cried when I heard it. She really intently listened to my writing. Um, writing to me is not something I can help. It's like, it's almost like eating or breathing to me. And, and it's not something I just go make a meeting with other writers to sit down and write a song. It, it wakes me up in the middle of the night. If I don't have my voice recorder next to my bed or a notebook or something, sometimes it will pass and I'll regret not having written it down or, or recorded something. But um, I just feel like it comes from from above. I feel like God gives you inspiration to do things and it's up to you to be responsible with what you do with it, but I can't help but write. It, and it doesn't happen often. I went to see Brooks and Dunn in concert a few months back. I didn't expect to be inspired there, but I, <laughs> I ended up writing a song because of my experience at a Brooks and Dunn concert that's coming out in June. And uh, it, it's all about getting chills when you hear a certain song. I'm sure you've experienced that. Mm. Or when you get a lump in your throat, when you don't even know what you know what that's meaning so I, I connected the dots as to what all those signs are in this song that's coming up so I can't wait to share that with you this song is called I think it's Jesus and it's all about like wow that's weird I saw a penny where it shouldn't belong I see a thumb where it shouldn't be I saw a feather fall down that wasn't expected I didn't see a dove anywhere around you know so the common denominator what is that so I wrote a song called I think it's Jesus it may not be for everybody but I really don't care. I mean, it was for me and it's a way to summarize it. And it really helped me be able to put a, a lid on that for me. Has there been songs in your time that you didn't want to give to someone because they were too precious and you had to record them? Those songs that only you could ever record? Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, How does that feel? Well, that's a, um, it's something that happened recently. So, um, I don't ever pitch my songs. I really do, just don't. If they, if somebody finds them in some way, that's great. You know, I must be really, really rare in that format. But I don't like sharing things that I've written and go, oh, this is the greatest song ever. Because generally, those people that tell you they're the greatest cooks cannot cook. <laughs> so I don't want to be that songwriter to go, this is the greatest song ever, and then them go, oh, please. So I'm kind of shy in that department. But I had somebody cut something of, of mine that I felt that was more for me. I wish them luck with it. I'm coming out with mine, you know, at some point in life. At, and I, I just feel that sometimes messages are given to you as an individual for your purpose to, to share with them. And, and it's really weird when somebody else cuts your song. Sometimes they hear it in a totally different way than you do. And you're used to hearing it a certain way or a certain uh, way you phrase things. And if they, if they phrase it different, it, it, as a writer, you go, I, that's not how I meant that. Or, you know, so it's, it's hard. It's like giving your children away and letting somebody else raise them. It's, it's a strange, strange phenomenon. 1111 is a phenomenon. It is the title of your debut album. When I saw that, and I've been doing it on and off over the years. I was reminded when I was first introduced to that and who introduced me to the concept of 1111. And I don't need to go into the full details of that now. In fact, I won't. It's quite personal. But from that point on, that numerology sort of played in my mind when I saw it. Why is the album called 1111? My dad, as a kid, I thought he made this up. Clearly he did not. 
But anytime he would be on the road or and thinking of us, and it happened to be eleven eleven, he would just he would call one of us kids, "Hey, it's eleven eleven. That meant thinking of you, love you, just an overall dad's here and he's watching over you kind of thing. And years after his passing, it was a form of comfort for me. When I would see it, I would be in the process of making a big decision, like say uh, I was going to purchase a car and this car that I wanted to buy, I was sitting in the car and it was like 3.43 in the afternoon. Well, the car stereo, I was on on the edge of whether I should buy it or not because it was a little bit more expensive than I was comfortable with. So I just thought, wonder what dad would do. And I looked down at the clock and it was flashing 11.11. And I thought, sold. Just little things like that. Nothing really big or anything. But I do notice that in doing a little bit more research about it, a lot of people think that that is the angel's way of directing you into making more positive decisions. Mm. Who knows? I'm not a numerologist. I'm not an astrology. You know, but I do feel that if we open our eyes and open our hearts and minds to gifts that are given to us, why not use them to your benefit? If that makes you feel comforted, you know, and, and that does, it comforts me. I, I feel my dad around and I feel guided in a way. When I see a red bird, I feel comforted by that. Speaking about things that fly, what is the passion or the drive for the dragonfly? <laughs> this is the weirdest phenomenon. I'm looking at my backyard right now while we're talking and then I've got a pool back here. And I notice the strangest of things, like every summer, it's not like it's the same dragonfly that's my pet or something, you know, but every summer I'll go out there and I'll hold my fingers up and inevitably every day a dragonfly lands on my finger. One day, a funny story, I didn't have my glasses on or my contacts in and I'm, I did that and I'm like, wow, that is a big dragonfly. That's the biggest dragonfly I've ever seen. I reached for my glasses and I go, oh, there's two mating on my finger. <laughs> One thing I've learned that I had in common with Olivia, I always knew this, but it really reiterated it. When I was at her funeral service in California, before your service there in Australia, Mm. her husband, John, affectionately spoke about how animals come to her. She's like Snow White in the forest. All the animals come out to play. And that's one thing we had in common. I find it so strange that birds come near me and insects land on me and deer come towards me. You know, it's, it's so, I don't know what that is, but I love it. I love it. I think animals can sense your spirit somehow. I don't know. Can we talk about Coco? Oh, I love Coco. I put her in her room so she wouldn't bother us today, but she is the love of our lives. She's so, so smart. I love her. I'm glad you asked about her. Coco is one of many dogs I believe that we've had over the years. How does Coco make a house a home? (laughs) I'm surprised she's not in here chewing up something as we're talking, because if I don't give her 1000% of her attention, she's into something. She loves my makeup. She loves clothes. She'll take off running with underwear or something through the house. She keeps us laughing all the time, but she's grown into quite a lover and she just wants to please us so much. and, And she just is, But at nighttime, she's laying as close to me as she can. And I just go, you know what time it is? And she'll just get up and walk into her little crate and turns around for a treat. And she's just so much better behaved now than she once was. At one point, I thought she was like the Tasmanian devil. She was crazy. We got through those puppy stages. I'm, I'm grateful that we got through. But she is her sister, Piper, 
is Kim Fannin's sister. So um, we get to see, they get to see each other quite often. And, and it's really kind of neat to see them uh, still remember each other, even though months go by and, and they pick up right where they left off. So it's, it's a neat relationship. Tasmanian devils aren't that crazy. Mm. I'm sure they were okay. lovely. Uh, the one on the cartoon, I should say. Yes, yes, Tazo, yeah. <laughs> we need better male role models in society and in the music industry in general. And, and one thing I picked up is that of the placement of coins across the world. Can you talk to me, if you don't mind, about significance of coins across the world, not just in fountains? Well, I had never heard of this phenomenon before dating TG. He would say, you know, this is a really special day. We need to celebrate this. We need to stop and realize we need to seal this moment in time. Give me a coin. And I would, I would give him a coin and he would kiss it. He'd make me kiss the coin and then he'd put it in some place rather hidden that nobody else would see or the weather would affect it or wind or whatever. And I said, why are you doing this? And he says, because it's important to seal this moment. And then maybe at some point you'll want to go back and you can reach for that coin and it'll take you right back to where you were and who you were with. And I'm like, that's amazing. You know, so we haven't done it in a little while because we've been together for so long, but there's so many coins that we have spread across the world, different locations, like where we had our first kiss or our football stadium seats or, you know, things like that. Some coins we have not been able to re-find again, but I actually wrote a song about it called When We Loved Here. I'll be putting that out at some point in the next couple of years. It's a really sweet sentiment for people to have that in common and, and be able to revisit. When I was listening about the life of your now husband, he had 60 cents to his name when he left home. And so I can imagine him holding coins and going, this is all I've got. And then to get to a place in his life where he can place and share coins with the one he loves across the world really hit me in a really good way. I've never thought of it like that. I, I That's beautiful. You know what? A, a side note. He lived in this little tiny town called Humboldt, Tennessee. It, they still have the same amount of people now that they did before. Every time a baby's been born, a man leaves town is why. <laughs> so, um, but it's a tiny little tiny town in Tennessee. And coming up, they're getting ready to honor him as T.G. Shepherd Day and name a street after him and do a big plaque and have dinner with the governor and, and all this stuff. So I'm really thrilled because that's the same street that he ran away from. Uh, to go chase his dreams. And he was a car hop there and he's had a real full circle life and he's a fascinating man. Speaking about your childhood, you were born in Oklahoma. They awarded you with an award for the town, not like a key to the city, but close to it. It, it was that kind of award. What are your memories of Oklahoma? I love Oklahoma. I've still got a lot of family members there and, and I cherish my memories tremendously. Um, it's changed a lot. You know, a lot of the things that held me there as a child a lot of the family members are no longer there. There's so many incredible artists that come from Oklahoma. It's like in the water there, <laughs> like uh, Vince Gill and Carrie Underwood and, oh my gosh, Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks. There's, there's, yeah, tons of them from, from close in that region. So I'm really honored to be there from there. For them to give me a Kelly Lang day is mind-blowing and uh, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame put me in their Hall of Fame most recently, and my family thinks I'm really special now. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's quite fun to to have connections, and I'll always find my heart still lives there. 
You started by doing paintings of the top of a coffee cup and then doing a portrait of your now husband, which is in your music room or at least in the home that you now share. What was the kernel of the idea that wanted you to become an oil painter for which you now are? I didn't want to be one. <laughs> my mom and my brother paint. He He's a trained painter from college, but I, I sing. I thought that was his lane. I thought this was my lane or right, you know. So TG, as a gift, he just thought well, she could probably paint. So he bought me an oil painting kit. And I thought, what am I supposed to do with this? I, I don't have any desire to paint. And so just to pay him back, he wrote, I'm not sure if you all get Folgers coffee there. Going to put an advert you're about to talk to in the show notes. So he wrote the song, the theme song to their commercial. The best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. So I thought it was just perfect for me to paint a coffee cup for him as a gift for buying me this oil painting kit. So this lady that, I, that was framing my painting that I did for him, she said, I love this. I want to buy this. And I thought, oh, there's money to be had. So I started painting just as a, a fluke. And then I started making a living doing it. And then I got kind of busy and I got too tired of the deadlines with that. So I only paint or only painted for a while of things that I just really enjoyed as gifts for people. And I, I haven't painted in a little while because I, I just really have been super busy with the book and traveling and all that. But I, I need to get into that more in the fall and winter time. So that makes it a little bit easier to be home did a portrait of your husband and I believe it hangs out with Elvis Presley's gun. I just was trying my hand at portraits. It's not something that's super easy for me in any way, but my favorite thing about him is not him on stage. It's not him as an artist or anything. I loved at the end of his show, he would get on the bus and he would put his glasses on and he would write checks. He just looks sexy. I don't know what that is. I just took a snapshot of him doing that one night because it was my favorite aspect of him. And I painted it. I think it looks like him. I don't know what he thinks about it, but he was, he was appreciative of it. I did name drop that he does have, or did have Elvis's gun that was uh, gifted to him. That's his story. Your story is that Marie Presley um, is is in your circle. I'm closer to Priscilla. Priscilla, apologies. Wife. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, she is very supportive of my music and she was going to write me a, a promotional thing for my album, the last album. But unfortunately, her son, her grandson passed away and I certainly wasn't going to circle back around for that. But she loved my book. And as a matter of fact, she's given my book to several friends that are going through breast cancer. And her cousin, Ivy, who uh, lives with her, she gave Ivy my book and Ivy really benefited from her. This is her lips, not mine, from some of my things that I went through. And she decided to make those same decisions for herself and is really happy uh, that she chose a different route than what the doctors had posed for her. I don't advocate that, but I I just shared my story and and, uh, she seemed to really lean in a little harder than I I thought she would. But it's, it's been a great relationship between Priscilla and I. She's a lovely friend. She's a very sweet and sensitive person. I just hate for all of her losses that she's had. It it really is sad. Breaks my heart. She also dropped past for your 53rd birthday as well. (laughs) A friend of mine in Jackson, Tennessee, which is in between Nashville and Memphis, was having a dinner party for me. And he was just, you know, happy to have a few friends over. And he didn't tell me who he really invited. And we were just sitting there talking and all of a sudden I get tapped on the shoulder and it's Priscilla Presley at my birthday party. <laughs> so 
I was like, oh my gosh. And that was Elvis week was really a very busy week for her there in Memphis. My husband just walked in. Hi, baby. Hi. And, um, Hi, TG. So, oh, hey, yeah, this is John. <laughs> no, but she uh, came to my party and surprised me. And I can't imagine her doing that for very many people. She's a very busy woman. So I, I marked that as bucket list for me. It was really cool. Hi, Steve Davis here from the Adelaide Show podcast. We have an eclectic range of guests covering an eclectic range of topics, all to put the passion of South Australia on centre stage. You can find us at theadelaideshow.com.au and, of course, in your favourite podcast app. Right now, back to John Murch and Radio Notes. Ascension Hospitals, I hadn't heard of them before, but they are quite a big organisation across America where you join us from. Can you talk to us how your song became part of their story? I had gone to their hospital for care when I was diagnosed with cancer. Many years later, it was actually called something else at the time. Many years later, somebody had heard my story and they thought it would be a good marketing tool for them to share my story within their lobby and their, their waiting room. For to encourage other patients that, hey, I was at that time 14 years out, I guess. You know, it's just a nice feel-good story for their patients. Somebody in the higher-ups at marketing got wind of that, and they also heard me sing it at a place here in Nashville called the Bluebird Cafe on YouTube. And they thought, wow, that song would be uplifting and encouraging for a national commercial. So they reached out to my music administrator and asked if I would be willing to allow that song to be part of the campaign. And I did. And I naively just thought it would be just a nice commercial and didn't think much about it. But it came out right when the pandemic hit and everybody was stuck at home and everybody was having to leave their loved ones in nursing homes and hospitals. And, you know, it was just an unfortunate situation across the world. So it really resonated with people to leave comfort and music is comforting and, and somewhat healing to some people. Like it, it really took a, uh, it filled a big void for a lot of people that were needing that, that field. And I've had a lot of lovely letters written to me from people that heard it and played it for their loved ones. And uh, unfortunately they played it at some funerals, but then played it at their weddings, you know? So it was likened to Debbie Boone's song, You Light Up My Life, where it was really multifaceted and, and a lot of people used it in different ways, And but it really propelled the, my visibility and my writing. And it's just a, a beautiful gift that I was given from them. And also it ran during the Super Bowl. Shazam, I noticed up to about 13,000 plus hits. So people have been hearing it in the wild and have picked up on that. And of course, that brings them back to you and the other music that you're producing. And I also noticed cruise ship experience. I love cruises. We just recently performed on a country music cruise in January. I just love it. I love people. I love when people come and recognize us and sit with us and talk and give us their impression of you know our music. And my husband and I just absolutely love performing on them. And we may be doing our own cruise, you know, that way people can come if they're fans of our music or whatever. We might grab some other of our artist friends and, and do our own cruise. And, and I, I think it'd be a blast to just maybe do three or four a year and do our own concerts on there because it's a lot of fun. And you get the crowd is built in. <laughs> they can't go anywhere. So they're stuck there and they need entertainment. So it, it's just a it's a win win for us. The genre that you're within or the range of genres that you're within very much are suited to that as well. Yeah. Chapter 13 of the book, you mentioned Tim McGraw's Live Like You're Dying. Yes. How that fits 
into this narrative about surviving and not letting the actual disease take over your thought process? Live Like You Were Dying is is a person that in the song, they were diagnosed with cancer. And before they left there, they had this epiphany, like, wow, I need to ride that bull. I need to jump out of a plane. I need to, you know, all these things like you need to just like carpe diem or whatever, you know, you just need to seize the moment. I ended up writing a song called Life Sentence because I don't think my cancer diagnosis, I didn't want it to be my death sentence. I wanted that to be switched in my brain and turn it into my life sentence. So I wrote a song inspired by the Tim McGraw way of living and Livia's way of living. Wow. You know, we could really go dark with this if we wanted to, but a choice is a better choice is to appreciate the sky being bluer and the grass being greener and really live life bigger and and enjoy the moment that you've got because you're not guaranteed your next breath. That's the inspiration that I got for that from that song to write Life Sentence. As a matter of fact, I dedicated the video to Olivia. And it's a lot of people that gone through their own experiences with cancer that sent in their picture holding up how they're going to choose to live life more appreciatively or abundantly. Or So it's a really exciting video. You're now or have been doing the journaling idea of gratitude, gratitude journaling. How's that fitting into both your life as well as your songwriting? Because I can imagine... By doing that writing process, it's helping the songwriting process as well, if only just for ideas of what to sing about. Yeah, it does. I'm guilty of going in and out of being faithful to doing it on a daily basis. But I learned something the other day. It it gave me a little bit of encouragement not to beat myself up for not doing it every day. I saw Oprah Winfrey talking about The Secret and things like that. She said that when you learn to live in this way, you don't have to write things down then. You just live appreciatively. You live abundantly. You live. And so life gives you back what you give it. And you don't have to be so mindful to journal if you're already living in that mindset, which I have grown into doing. And and my life really revolves in such a positive way. I think it can only be the way I've trained myself to live. So when I do write it down, it becomes more obvious to me. And it becomes more clear because I can look back on those journals as to how far I've come, which is really, really powerful. 2003, watching the Oprah show that started you on this journey. I was at home with my two girls and the Oprah Winfrey show that day was about breast cancer under 40. And this young girl, she was 26 years old, really beautiful girl. She was encouraging people to do a self-exam. And I never did that before. And I thought, this is boring. So I kept clicking the channel, trying to find something more fun to watch and nothing else was on. So I kept landing on her and I thought, okay, what's it going to hurt? You know? So I did. And that's when I found two little spots under my arm and I thought, oh, that there's no way this, you know, so I put it off going to the doctor and the doctor said, oh, you're too young for this. And I said, that's what that girl said, you know, and it ended up, she waited eight more months before she took me seriously. And I I'd like to be an advocate for people. If you feel something, just go check it out. Laurie Morgan. She is a country music singer and I looked up to her a great deal. She's a little bit older than myself and I really respected and admired her musical career. And I kind of wanted to be her when I grew up, you know, it's one of those things. If I could have a career, that's who I would want it to be like. Um, I really love the fact that she took me under her wing at a very young age and and was willing to 
um, she, she didn't have time. She had a huge career here, but she took the time to embrace me and love on me and help me. And, um, it was, it was a pivotal place in my career that, uh, I needed her in particular, uh, to be kind to me, which gives me the, the, uh, wanting to help others that might be coming up underneath myself. So I love that about her. Star Search. What was that experience all about? I obviously I found the clip of it and I was like going, what a voice back then. I had more enthusiasm than talent at the time. I was a very hyper kid. I was an opening act for most every country artist at a very young age. I had a single on the charts when I was 15 and was doing local television. And I guess Star Search, uh, Ed McMahon was the host of Star Search. He was on the Tonight Show here um, for many years. It's like American Idol, for lack of better thing. I don't know if you get American Idol there or not. Well, this was the original American Idol. Yes. Okay, this is before social media, but it was that big. It was a huge show. They were going around doing like talent scouts, and they came to me when I was 17, before they had the younger generation on there. So I was too young to join it the first year. Second year, they came back and wanted to know if I would try out, and I did. And I went up against a girl named Tariva Henderson. She had won like six or seven weeks in a row. The audience tied us. No, the judges tied us. And then they threw it to the audience to tie and to break the tie. They tied us, which in the total history of Star Shirts, that had never happened. So they made me come back and perform against two girls, Tariva and another girl. I was lucky enough to win that night. Came back the third week and did not win, but I was able to go into the semifinals. It was a really cool experience. Grateful that I did it. But, you know, in light of that today with social media and how people are so judgmental and willing to sit behind their computers and be ugly. Thank God I'm not in it today. <laughs> so I have great empathy for these kids trying out because it's it takes a lot of courage to do that. And they're killing it. I'm so proud of them. There's a lot of yarns in this book. I'm looking down my notes going, do we talk about that? I'm like, no, no, people can find out in the book. For example, how an ex-wife set you up with TG. You need to read the book about that because I was like, what a woman. She either really loved us and thought the world of us or she hated both of us and wanted us to miserably hate each other, but it backfired either way. So I'll leave that for the book. The one thing we should mention is Burt Reynolds and this is the film Deal First time I'd ever heard my music in a movie. Um, there's three songs of mine that ended up in that movie, actually. To be able to go to Vegas to to see the premiere of it and walk the red carpet. And and I'm hoping that I can write for more movies. You know, that was it was a real cool experience and didn't meet Bert that night. He was too ill by the time the movie had come out. I had met him before and TG was friends with him before. So it's kind of a full circle moment for us both to be able to say that we had that experience together. What is your favorite film of all time? I love Urban Cowboy. John Travolta is in this movie. You're familiar with John. He played a cowboy in the movie. And it's when the era of line dancing became really, really big in Texas. And that's when my career began taking off in America. Everybody was dressing in their finest hats and their finest cowboy clothing and stuff and dancing. And it was just a great era of music. Really loved that movie. And of course, I love Coal Miner's Daughter, too. The Loretta Lynn biopic. I love true stories. I like I like to see true stories. So I'd say those two are my all-time favorite, though. There's a piano in your home that I think a lot of people have a great admiration for. Can you talk to us about the piano in your home? We have a beautiful baby grand piano. And after I went through a divorce, 
I lost my piano. I had to sell it and I was so sad. I wanted it back. And it's not that I play that often. It's not even that I'm even good at it, but it just was a feeling of if I needed to write, I could go to that. It was comforting to me. So we found a company here in the Nashville area, Gallatin area, and they were really kind. They knew who I was. They knew my about my writing. They knew I had a lot of artists here at the house. So we struck a deal for them to place the piano in our house to have artists play around it and sing around it, sign the piano, and then donate it to causes. We're on our third piano now. Really cool to be able to raise money and be able to enjoy the process of that too. This one I'm keeping though. I went ahead and made the deal because I had Brenda Lee, uh, Olivia, Barry Gibbs sign it, Mac Davis, which I don't know if you're familiar with him, but a huge star in, in the States, all of the Oak Ridge boys, it's just very special to me because Olivia and Barry were here at my house and had dinner with me here at my house. It's cooking for royalty and I don't even cook. I wouldn't take anything for them being at my piano and singing with me. And and uh, I, I couldn't let the piano go this time. Can I suggest if you don't have vegan guests, then uh, Springer Mountain Farm chickens might be a good thing to cook. <laughs> right? They're my beautiful sponsor. Gus Arendelle is the owner of the company. He's a dear friend and he believes in sharing music and and the love of it. So thank God for him. Thank you very much, Kelly Lang, for joining us. Thank you for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. Kelly Lang, I'm Not Going Anywhere is now available as an audio book, which is available at kellylang.net. That has also further information about her music, video clips, wide-ranging merch store, and details of upcoming shows. Lang will perform at Country for a Cause in Nashville on 7th of June 2023 at 3rd and Lindsley. Thanks very much to Kelly Lang for being our featured guest today. Next time, Joel Trigg of The Rookies helps us get our jazz on. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 